Thanks, Katie. Well, good morning, guys. How's it going? Good to see you. Thanks for not responding. Appreciate it. I'm just kidding. I <laughs> know uh, it's early. Uh, it's like an hour earlier than usual. I'm feeling it. But um, I do want to ask you this morning an important question. I'm curious. Why, why did you drive on the right side of the road when you came here this morning? Why did you do that? Why did you drive on the right side of the road when you came here this morning? Uh, if you were to answer that, you'd probably say, it's because we're supposed to, right? Uh, you'd say, because it's the law, I'm going to get in trouble or something. Uh, just that's what we do. You might even say, Josh, why are you asking me difficult questions this early on Daylight Savings Day? You know, why are you asking me that? Um, it's actually interesting, though. Um, did you know that in the early years of English colonization in North America, people followed uh, the English customs in the early years and drove on the left side of the road, horse and buggy and all? But then after we gained independence from England, uh, we tried as a country to like rid ourselves of all things that we thought were British or too British or too English. And so we gradually changed to driving on the right side of the road. Isn't that interesting? That you driving here this morning on the right side of the road was in rebellion to the queen. That's literally what you were doing. You were rebelling against England. That's what you did this morning. You didn't even know it, did you? Isn't that interesting? There are so many things, you guys, that we do in life and we have no idea why we do them. We just do them. And if someone asks us why, we're like, this is what you do. It's what you're supposed to do. I think similarly, uh, there are many things that we do in the Christian faith that if you were to ask why you do that, you would say, that's just what we do. And that's the furthest it goes in your explanation. I think one of those things for many of us can be the Lord's Supper. This communion meal that as followers of Christ, we, we get the privilege of taking Every single week, if someone were to go, why do you do that? We'd say, it's just what we do. It's what Christians do. Uh, some people call this meal, in some traditions, the Eucharist. Uh, that just means, uh, generally, the, th the term is uh, to give thanks. means thanksgiving. Some people call this the Lord's Supper, which is a reference to Jesus' inauguration of this meal when he gathered with his disciples uh, on Passover before he went and died on a cross. And then uh, other people... Our church generally calls it this term, uh, is, is the word communion. It means to share in or to have fellowship. And uh, whatever you call it, the ordinance is given to us by God as this means of grace, and we can fail to realize what this meal really is and why we, why we eat it. We often fail to realize it. But it's not just us, not at all. The uh, Corinthians, in fact, had gotten way off base and completely forgot what it is they were doing and why they were doing it. Um, so what are we doing? Why are we doing it? Uh, to not know the why and the what to this question doesn't just result in you losing out on some fun facts, like why you drove on the right side of the road, um, but you actually, our passage tells you, it can result in God's loving discipline if you don't know what you're doing and why you're doing it. So this morning, uh, it should be on the back of your paper notes or on the screen behind me, um, there's a few things that this passage really reveals to us. It's so important, you guys. The first thing that we see is what this meal represents. It represents something, and you need to know that. Uh, secondly, we see what this meal says. It says something to you. 
It speaks. And the third thing is uh, something that this meal produces. This meal produces something. It demands something in us. So the first thing is we see here is what this meal represents, what this meal represents. Uh, read with me in verses 17 to 22, and then we're going to read 33 and 34 because Paul, Paul kind of loops back around to this idea of what it represents. He says in verse 17, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. I'm not, I'm not okay with this, okay? You're not doing well. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you for this? No, I will not. Verse 33, so then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. This is showing us here, really importantly, that when we take the Lord's Supper, you guys, you are representing something. There is a reality that you are displaying in the act of eating and drinking. This meal represents our unity and our oneness in the body of Christ. That's what it represents. Uh, when the church is, is gathering together here, we're told in these initial verses that they would come together and they would eat. And some of them are indulging so much so, even before others arrive, uh, that there's not anything left over for other people, particularly who are poor. And some people are indulging so much, much that they are drunk or getting wasted. Uh, what's going on here might feel a bit lost on us because we don't come together on Sunday mornings and have like an amazing brunch. We don't drink a ton of mimosas and we're like, hey, some of you had too many. You know, we don't do that kind of stuff, right? It's important to realize, though, that in the first century, Christians, uh, they began to gather on the first day of the week because that's when Jesus rose from the dead. But in the first day of the week during their time was not a day off. So they had to work. So they either would eat, meet early, early in the morning or late at night. Most people would meet late at night. And when they would eat late at night, they would often have a meal together. They would eat a meal, and the Lord's Supper would be kind of a part of that meal. Also, it's another important thing to realize. Churches back in this time and, and day, especially this church in Corinth, they didn't meet in theaters like this. They didn't have church buildings. They met in homes. And the homes they would meet in were actually the, the wealthier Christians. Wealthier Christians, they'd have larger homes, and they could house a lot of people. And so what they would do is they would invite everybody over to gather for church on Sunday evening to eat a meal. And traditionally in these homes, they would have a room that we would translate called the best room. So they had this best room. And the wealthy person of the home would often have the, the higher status, uh, more wealthy people in that church, in that society, eat in that room. It was a smaller room. But in plain view of this room, there would be this other larger room. It was called an atrium. And you can get about 40 people in there. So it's kind of like in an airplane, first class, business class. You know, you can see through the curtain a little bit and feel bad. You know, you have to walk through and you just feel like you're not as high society or something like that. This is what's happening in this church. 
there were these social divisions out in society, and they were bringing them into the church. And so the wealthy people are, are gathering. They're coming first. They're, they're eating the better food. They're drinking the finer wine. When, when the lower people in society are arriving later, most of them were slaves. The reason they're arriving later is because they have traditionally work later into the day. They arrive later. There's no food. And they could just see what's happening in the other room and how they wish they were there. And they see the little that they have. This is what's happening here. So Paul says, you guys are divided. You're using this social class to divide. So he ironically contrasts between the, between the Lord's Supper and their own meal. And he actually says in verse 20, what you're eating is not in fact the Lord's Supper, even if you want to call it that. Why is he saying that? I'm just curious, why is it such a big deal? Why can he go as so far as to say, you say you're eating the supper, but you're not actually eating the supper. Why can he say that? Well, it all has to do with what Paul already addressed in chapter 10, verse 16. This will be on the screen. Remember this? He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? But the word participation, you might be familiar with this one. The Greek word is koinonia. It's the word uh, fellowship. He says, is it not a fellowship? A sharing in, a communion with the body of Christ? Do you see what's happening here? When we take the bread, what's happening? We are saying that we belong to one body. We belong to one body. That's what we're representing. The bread is a reference to the broken body of Jesus. And we know that the church often, we're going to see it even next week, it's referred to as the body of Christ. This is huge. This is so important, you guys. Do you see this? In this meal, symbolically, the body eats the bread that symbolizes the body that we are a part of. The body eats the body. And in doing so, says, I'm a part of the body. The body eats the body and represents, I'm a part of the body. I'm part of one body. This is not what the church is representing, though, when they come together. Instead, what they're doing is they're exhibiting personal fulfillment. Right? They're exhibiting arrogance or a lack of concern for others or politicking or indulgence. They aren't functioning at all like one body or caring that they're a part of a body. They only care about their own personal body. So Paul is hammering this contradiction, and so he gives them the alternative. In verse 33, what they should do, he says, what? Wait for one another. Wait. Stop showing up to church, eating all the meal, and neglecting the poor. Stop acting like you're better. He tells them to wait. Because as people were showing up, they would just eat. And then when the lower class, again, the, the, probably the slaves arrived, there wouldn't be much left. And in fact, people were already indulged so much that they're even drunk. That's what we see. He's saying, guys, this is not a time for showing off. This is not a time for partisan spirits. This is not a time to satisfy your, your physical hunger. Eat at home. He says, this is a time, you guys, to express unity around the table of our Lord. That's what this time is for. I mean, this might actually feel pretty irrelevant to us because, again, we don't eat brunch on a Sunday. So you're like, does this even apply, you know? Plus, we don't, you know, we don't wait for each other. We're all here on time, kind of, Right? I mean, this is the branch, right? Everyone's 10 minutes late, okay? Um, 
But remember, right, the meal represented their unity. It wasn't the meal that divided them. The way they were taking the meal revealed how divided they were. The issue isn't simply an eating issue, it's a heart issue. That's the point. So, so this is how this works for us, guys. If, if we bring into this gathering where we eat this communion meal, if we bring into it all the hierarchy, all the division, So, hello. Um, this is so important because if we bring into this gathering where we take this communion meal, our, our divisions, our biases, guys, our, our mentalities that say to one another, maybe not verbally, but through our actions and the secret hidden places of our heart, if we, if we feel like I'm better than you, if we bring in these separations or these social divisions or even social divisions that say, I'm smarter than you, or I'm better dressed than you, you're looking down on people because you're wealthier or something, or if you look down on people because you're like, I'm more down to earth than they are. I mean, the, the spectrum could be all over the place, honestly. If we bring these mentalities into our gathering, and at the very point where we must remember that we are sinners before God, at the very point where we take the meal, we remember we are sinners before God, and by God's grace, we all belong to one body, and we eat one loaf, then the act of us actually gathering and eating becomes an act of hypocrisy. And as we eat and drink, this is a time to confess our one-upmanship, not flaunt it. It's a time to confess our arrogance and in return love one another for Jesus' sake and acknowledge that we are one in him. This meal unites us. Uh, last fall, um, uh, me and my wife, we went to go see um, our, our, one of our favorite artists, um, Gregory Allen Isakoff, play with the Portland Symphony, and it was, it was beautiful. Now, uh, if you've ever been to a symphony in general, even a band concert in high school, right? Um, you know that what makes it beautiful is the instrumentalist unity in playing, isn't it? What is it that unifies them? What is it that unifies instrumentalists in a symphony or something? It's the music. It's the written music. I mean, now just imagine if me and my wife showed up to this concert last fall, and everyone in the, in the, in the symphony decided, you know what, I'm going to play my favorite Gregory Allen song, and I want to play them in the order that I want to play them and everyone just started playing their own music, right? What would happen? That'd be chaos, wouldn't it? They might have nailed every single note, but it would have been ugly to listen to, wouldn't it? It'd be an insult to the definition of what a symphony is. What they would have done wouldn't have represented as what a symphony was at all, would it? Not at all. Right? It wouldn't have portrayed the incredible music of Gregory Allen. Guys, it's, it's music, it's the, it's the music itself that unifies the symphony. That's what happens. In the same way, this, this meal is kind of like our sheet music, right? It unifies us. And in eating it, we display our unity. Just like in, in a symphony, the, the sheet music unifies the symphony. But in playing the music together, it, it displays their unity in the same sort of way. That's what this meal represents. But this meal also says something. It speaks. Read with me. Uh, in verse 23. What does it say down in verse 23? 
says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Paul, he goes back to remind us that it was Jesus himself that inaugurated this meal. And we, we learn here that there are really two things that this meal says, two fundamental things that this meal says. It's a, it's a speaking meal. This meal, therefore, requires our listening because it, it speaks something to us. The first thing it speaks to us is to remember Jesus' death. It says, remember. The meal speaks to our remembrance of his death. It says, remember. We see this in verses 23 through 25. And therefore, guys, this, there's primary importance in our worship gathering on remembering Jesus' death. But that's what the church has historically done. And I think this can be really challenging for us in our day and age because we're so programmed to be most interested in things that are new, not things that are old. Um, I grew up in a church where we um, sang a lot of old hymns. We just had like an organ and a piano. And I found it very boring, not going to lie. Um, one hymn in particular was a hymn called Tell Me the Old, Old Story. Has anybody heard of this? Tell me. There we go, Jeff. Yeah, Sam. All right. I see you guys. Um, tell me the old, old story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. Tell me the story simply as to a little child, for I am weak and weary and helpless and defiled. Tell me the old, old story. Tell me the old, old story. Tell me the old, old story of Jesus and his love. Uh, this song says, tell me the story simply as to a little child, for I am weary and helpless and defiled. And I vividly remember rolling my eyes and internally thinking, what makes me weary is this song. I uh, just, you, maybe you think I'm a bad Christian or something. Uh, I don't know for thinking that. But, but now I see, guys, I see that as a kid, what I wanted was something new. I wanted something stimulating, and I was tired of the old story. But this meal is a call to remember that old story. This meal forces us, you guys, to not run off and move on with our lives and, and, and to somehow care about other things that would pull us away from the core of our faith. The core of our faith is, is being brought back to this table every single week and remembering that Jesus died. The Son of God died to save sinners. That's what I'm brought back to. And I think what's scary today about the church is we can be obsessed with new. We can be obsessed with the new, and if we aren't careful, we can go from one week to the next, to the next, to the next, and never be brought back to just meditate for just a few minutes even on the death of God's glorious son. It's by this simple meal, guys, that Jesus insists that we come back to the center we return. And our human nature proves, I think, that we need this. Like, I, I need this. 
I need this means of grace every week. Because Sundays are the time that if, if you've somehow forgotten about Jesus all week long, when you come to this table, you are confronted with him once again. You are confronted once again. And just think about how powerful that is. I mean, it's so powerful to remember Jesus' death for us because how in the world can we play our games of like power and politics? How can we do that when we remember Jesus' death? How in the world can we be unmoved by the love of God when we're confronted with his death? How in the world could I be unconcerned about my holiness if I'm confronted with Jesus' death? How in the world can I be unconcerned about people who don't know Jesus when I'm confronted with his death? Right? We remember his death. That's what we're called to do. That's what this speaks to us about. This brings us back to the core. It grounds us and causes us to hear again of our frail state before a holy God. But the second thing that this meal speaks, it communicates our anticipation of our coming hope. That's what it does. It says hope. Verse 26 for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You're proclaiming something, that he's died, but that he's coming. You guys, Jesus is coming back. Like he's coming back. Like that's happening. And one day, we won't ever eat this meal again. Ever again. But because Revelation 19 tells us that we will eat at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And if you're unfamiliar with that image, the Lamb is Jesus, the one who was slain, who had died, that we remember. But we're going to eat with him. See, when the new heavens and new earth dawn, no one is going to eat this meal anymore because our hope will have arrived. That's what we're going to experience. This meal, every week, it anticipates our hope of what's to come. You take it and you're saying, man, the pain that I'm in right now will one day be no more. Right? The, the, the suffering that I'm enduring will one day be no more. Right? The anticlimax of my life will one day be no more. It, it's really important to realize that, again, Jesus, in these verses, it's hearkening back to him uh, celebrating Passover, which is the Jewish feast that, that commemorated and remembered how God had delivered Israel out of their slavery in Egypt. They were slaves, like physical slaves in the land of Egypt, and God redeemed them powerfully and brought them into a new land and made them a new people, right? And so when they're taking this bread and, and cup that you see in Passover, they're remembering that God did that. But even the Jews, when they would take this meal, they would always look forward. It's, it's really interesting that when the Jewish people were in exile, when they were dispersed all, all over the Middle East and they didn't have a home, when Jerusalem was, was taken over and things like this, they would still gather and they would still celebrate Passover, even in the foreign land. And they would say something very interesting during this meal. They would take the bread, they'd take the cup and all these different things, and they would say, next year in Jerusalem. Next year in Jerusalem. Next year in Jerusalem. They looked back to the Exodus, but they looked to a hopeful future in the redemption of Israel. And in the same way, guys, we look back to our redemption at the cross and we stand in that redemption today, and we hope in our final redemption when Jesus comes. So when we take it, we don't say, next year in Jerusalem, next year in Jerusalem, because our hope isn't in a restored city or in some material government. Our hope is in a person. 
Our hope is in a person. So we take it, and when we take it, we're saying, until he comes. Until he comes. Until he comes. That's what we're saying. Our ultimate goal is not to meet around the table and just simply remember Jesus' death. Our ultimate goal is on account of that death to meet with the risen Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. So then what do we see? When you take this meal every single time, each participation in the meal is anticipation. Every single participation is an anticipation of the day when you will see Jesus face to face. It's exactly what we see here. That's what this meal says, guys. It speaks, it says remember, it says hope. And we go, I remember. I remember until he comes. So we've seen what it represents. We've seen what it speaks. Finally, the third movement of this passage shows us what the meal produces. What it should produce in us is humility. That's what it's meant to produce in us. Verse 27, whoever eats the bread, drinks the cup, in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and, have, and some have died. But if we're judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. It says, whoever eats and drinks in an unworthy manner will be guilty. Notice that it says an unworthy manner, an unworthy manner, okay? It's not that you or, you or I are, are worthy or unworthy. It's not describing who you are or who I am. It's talking about our approach in eating this meal. There's an approach that we must take. Uh, of course we're unworthy, right? We, we know that. That's why Jesus had to die. The fact that I'm even taking the meal, I'm signifying that I am unworthy. It's the manner of our approach that God is concerned about. And the approach is this. How can we possibly come to this meal and say, I remember Jesus died for my sins when at the very moment I'm nurturing my sin? How can I come to this table and say, Jesus died to free me from my slavery? Why am I harboring this bitterness? Jesus died to set me free. Why am I nurturing this hate as I'm taking this meal? Jesus set me free. Why, why in the world would I be harboring all this self-centeredness? P people have at times questioned who the body is in verse 29. It's in fact a reference to the body of Jesus. It's not talking about you discerning your own body. It's not talking about you discerning the church body. It's talking about you discerning the body of Christ. And the argument's really simple. He's saying, unless you discern the body and blood of Jesus, which these elements are designed to make you remember, then how in the world can you take these elements that say you remember while at the same time you're nurturing your sin, which is showing that you've forgotten? How can you do that? Guys, yes, we are sinners. Yes, we need forgiveness and we aren't worthy, but we shouldn't approach remembering Jesus' death as if we don't care that Jesus died to free us from what it is that we're nurturing inside of our hearts. And that's precisely how people in Corinth were approaching the meal. And we, honestly, we aren't living in much of a different world today. 
If, if we eat this meal in an unworthy manner, then what we are told next is quite sobering. Because uh, you read verses 30 and 32, and it's pretty striking, isn't it? Pretty striking. What's at stake here is not simply, oh man, I missed out on some of the fun facts of what I'm actually doing, you know, when I'm eating the Lord's Supper or something like that. What, what, what the text is saying is that some instances of illness and even actual death are nothing less than Jesus' judgment for those who've approached this meal so lightly. He, he doesn't want his people to be condemned along with the world, so he gives temporal judgments to clean up the church. I didn't make this up. Uh, so please note that the language here, this is really important, the language is descriptive. It's not prescriptive. It's not, a com- it's not like a promise. It's not saying to you, uh, this will always happen. If you get sick, it's because you've done this. Right? If you died, it's because you've done this. It's not prescriptive. It's descriptive. He's saying the reason why some of you are sick is because you're doing this. You're eating in an unworthy manner. There's, there's something prescriptive here, though, for us, and that's that we shouldn't miss this. There, there's a play on words here because it says that we should discern ourselves rightly. But if we don't judge ourselves rightly, literally the word is discern, God will judge. God will discern you. That's what it says. He will enact a decision about what is right and good. That, that's what it means to judge, to decide what is good and right. So if you ever make a judgment, you're trying to say, this is what's right, this is what's wrong, this is what's good, this is what's bad. So either you can judge yourself before you take the meal, or God will, will judge you. Now, I know this language probably frightens uh, many of us today, but the judgment spoken of here isn't the judgment that you see at the end of your Bibles. That's not what it is. Right? It, it says here that this judgment of God is, is discipline. Verse 32 says that it's God's discipline to keep us, actually, from ultimate judgment. But we must be careful here because Paul suggests that some of these illnesses are because of sin. But guys, this doesn't mean that we should insist that every single sickness is because of sin. Right, right, John um, chapter 9 is a great example of this, where the disciples are following Jesus, and they see a guy who's blind. And the disciples go, who sinned, that guy or his parents? And Jesus goes, he's just blind, right? Right, That's basically what happens in that story. Is it this guy or his parents? And he says, it's, it's neither or. There, there isn't a one-to-one sickness-sin correlation that you're supposed to conclude from here in this passage. The goal of this passage is not to create speculation if someone gets sick. Like if someone's like, I got a, came down with a cold, you're like, did you eat communion? You know, is that what you did? You know, that's not, that's not the point. So, so tread very lightly here. That's what I'm trying to say. What this is saying is that taking this meal is serious. It's not just a meal. It's not just a ritual, like an empty ritual of sorts. God cares about his glory and his people not living comfortable, hypocritical lives in the world. And if we are comfortable in our sin while receiving a meal that proclaims Jesus died for sin, we should expect that that hypocrisy will be met eventually with God's loving discipline. It feels sobering, and that's kind of one of the goals, I think, of the passage, but Be reminded here that God's goal is to create for himself a spotless bride for his son, Jesus, and he's going to see that goal through. That's his goal. But there's actually something extraordinarily positive and medicinal about this passage right here because we see in verses 27 to 29 that this meal is inviting you into an opportunity every single week for self-examination. 
And therefore, this meal produces in you something. It produces in you humility if you're eating it rightly. This is a time or opportunity for self-examination. And just think about how wonderful that is, that each week before I come to take the elements of communion, I am called to self-examination, to ask God to bring to light the sin that I'm harboring or even the sin that I'm planning in order that I might bring it to him and ask him to not only forgive me, but to free me from it. This is so wonderful. It's so, it's so wonderful. That's why I said that what's so positive about this meal is that it naturally produces humility in us. And if it's producing humility in each one of us, then we're going to have a really incredible, loving community, aren't we? It's going to be an awesome community to be a part of. Do you guys know what feeds humility? Do you know what generates it? It's gratitude. It's gratitude. I don't know about you, but I'm definitely ready for some sun. I'm kind of sick of the rain and whatever we think is snow. <laughs> or what's posing as it. Um, I would love it right now if you just think about a time. Remember a time that you woke up in the middle of the night and rain was just like pounding against the roof of your house. You know what I'm talking about, right? You live in Oregon. Sure, it's happened before. And you just laid there and you were listening. It woke you up, you were just listening to it. I'm just curious, what were you thinking in that moment? You, you might say, well, I don't know, it was a long time ago or something. But, but I bet you I know what you were thinking in that moment. If you're anything like me, you were thinking what? You weren't thinking, man, I wish I had a bigger house. You don't wake up hearing the rain pelting at your roof and go, man, I got to get out of this place. I seen something bigger and better. No, you lay there and you go, man, I'm so grateful that I have a roof over my head right now. That's my first thought like every single time. I'm so glad I have this shelter. It creates this posture of, of gratitude. When I'm experiencing the protection of a house, I'm so grateful for the one that I have. And that does something to me. It makes me grateful. It makes me content. And it makes me humble, really. Because then I'm not just self-seeking and, and, and trying to seek some self-advancement in some way. Because gratitude produces humility. Why? Because you aren't thinking of your self-advancement. You're thinking about how you're being preserved, how you're being protected. Guys, if you come to this meal every single week and, and you're remembering that this meal is a meal where you're remembering the, the self-protection, the self-preservation, the redemption that you so humbly have received because we are so unworthy of it. That'll make you grateful. And that'll generate humility in you. If we're asking God to call us out and show us who the people are that we're separating from because we think we're better than them, or, or who the people are that we feel superior to, or to show us the pride in our hearts and the ways that we try to, to recommend ourselves to God, whether it's through our actions or our knowledge or whatever it possibly is, you know what that'll do? That'll make us an extraordinarily humble, unified people, won't it? it won't it? Uh, there's a saying that the family that eats together stays together. You guys hear that saying? family that eats together stays together. It's all over in different um, psychology journals and things like that. Numerous studies have shown that the family meal at the end of the day is on the steep decline, okay? 
Uh, a few studies have shown that even here up in the northwest of our country, nearly 50% of families uh, don't share dinner together other than maybe one or two nights a week. And a vast majority of those families don't eat a meal together at all at dinner. The saying, the family that eats together stays together, goes around because it's been shown that families that prioritize a family dinner in the evenings are healthier physically, because you're eating healthier food. They're healthier emotionally. Uh, they have better parent-child relationships. They have better marriages, etc. The list actually goes on and on. The family that eats together stays together because around that table at dinner at night, they share their family values. They communicate with one another. They laugh. They listen. They cry. They symbolically display their unity as a family as they gather around the table. That's why being invited over to someone's house for dinner, that's, a, that's an amazing thing. You feel really privileged to sit at that table with somebody. I know I do. Guys, if this is true for families, if just eating dinner around a table together is important, that if a family that eats together stays together, if this is true for families, then how much more is this true as a statement, the church that eats together stays together? How much more true is that statement? Like, if you think about what it is that we're really doing and believing and saying when we're eating, if we recognize this and live into this, that's going to do something to, your, to our church. That's going to do something to your heart. Because if I really saw what this meal represented, that I'm one body with you all. We're all one body. If we really believe what the meal is saying, that Jesus died for me, and I can't wait for him to return. If we really believe what this meal demanded of us to do before we took it, to actually examine ourselves, then it's not just a meal. These, these aren't just fun facts. Jesus really did die, and he really is coming back. So do you remember? Do you remember? As we take this today, may we realize that we're saying, I remember, until he comes. Until he comes. Pray with me. Father, we do want to humbly say God, that we are in desperate need of your grace in our life. God, we just think of what this meal represents and that we are participating in every single week. Lord, I am blown away that, that we had nothing we could bring to you in order for you to save us. God, that you, you did it all. Lord, you sent Jesus. Um, he lived perfectly for me, died for me, rose for me, and is coming again for me. And Lord, I pray that we would uh, really have eyes to see and believe that message, Lord, and that as we take this meal, that we would truly be people, God, who want to be free from our sin. Lord, who want to be pleasing to you. God, who want to live into the life that you've called us to live into. And God, I pray that you would use this communion meal every single week in our church to produce health, to produce reconciliation. Lord, that the other communities in our city would would really see something different, Lord, where even as we come together and we're all different people and we have different social classes or um, groups that we associate with, Lord, that we would see and feel how we are one. And may that just reflect the unity that we see, God, in you. God, may we be the people that you are desiring us to be. And would you use this meal as a means of grace in our life to accomplish that? I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Um,